Hello and welcome back to Banter, a podcast brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Matt Winesett. I'm Max Frost. And I'm Max Tui. And thank you for tuning back in from our couple-week-long hiatus. We are back with a Super Tuesday special starring Matthew Continetti. A super, super Tuesday special. One might say. Matt Continetti recently joined AEI as a resident fellow. He writes a lot about the Republican Party, the conservative movement, and he was previously the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. He's a regular guest on Special Report with Brett Baer, Meet the Press with Chuck Todd, and we are delighted to have him in the studio today. We don't want to waste any more of your time, so without further ado, here is Matt Continetti. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Matt, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, so post-Super Tuesday Redux, we're taping this Wednesday afternoon. Biden was left for dead and he just came storming back. How do you think he did it? I'm reminded of something my mentor Fred Barnes uh, told me many moons ago, which is the future in politics is never a straight line projection of the present. And uh, I fell victim to the assumption that a lot of people shared in Washington, D.C. after the Nevada caucus that uh, Bernie was picking up uh, kind of some unstoppable momentum. I think what happened, though, is there is a flight uh, to safety, both uh, economically right now. Uh, if you look at the current yield, I think it's up a little bit from what it was yesterday, but we, we, we had record low yields on the 10-year. And I think we're also seeing a flight to safety in politics. And so a combination of Jim Clyburn's endorsement, the demographics of South Carolina, and then I think most interestingly for thinking about the general election, those Romney-Clinton voters in the suburbs definitely in South Carolina. And then again on Super Tuesday, especially my home uh, environment of Northern Virginia, they came out strong for Joe Biden. And so I think he's got a coalition now that reestablishes him as the front runner in the race. But go back to what Barnes said, it's not over. And one thing I found very interesting is Bernie Sanders' strength with Hispanic voters. Yeah. And this has persisted um, throughout the campaign so far. And it's the one uh, sector, it seems, that Biden is having a little bit of trouble with. What do you think accounts for that, Bernie's popularity among Hispanic voters? I'm not really sure. Um, maybe it's his focus on economic issues. It could be his past as a kind of a tough-on-the-border guy. You never know. One thing we do know about Hispanic voters is they they are kind of tougher on immigration than, uh, than many people assume. No, I really don't know. But uh, I, I would say his emphasis on health care might be helping them, uh, helping him with that constituency. Um, when you look at Hispanic voters, they, as a, and it's very hard to generalize about Hispanic voters because, of course, there is no such thing as a Hispanic person. There are people from different Spanish-speaking countries, and these countries are very particular, and, and, and their political traditions are unique. So, of course, one cannot compare uh, Mexican-Americans uh, with Venezuelan-Americans or Cuban-Americans. Indeed, one cannot compare Mexican-Americans living in Texas with Mexican-Americans in California because their voting behaviors are different. But I would say, in general, I think Hispanic voters look to government more for economic uh, security than uh, than certainly uh, non-Hispanic white voters do. You, there's a strong sentiment in this country, uh, an anti-establishment sentiment. You saw this week several dropped out candidates who, in unison, rallied behind Biden. You had Bitter O'Rourke 
and then more notably Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg all with him in Texas before they went to Whataburger, all rallying together. Is it possible that this has a reverse effect? Because obviously it, it helped consolidate moderate liberal support for vice president. Is it possible that people are now like, wow, the establishment really still does run things and is just anti-Bernie? Well, that's certainly the message out of the Bernie camp. But the funny thing that's coming out of these results is the Bernie camp is not that big. And in fact, it's shrunk since 2016. And if you look at the results uh, from all the contests up through Super Tuesday, he has not cracked higher than 37% of the vote in any of these contests. And so I think most people saw, see that kind of consolidation or rallying around Biden within the Democratic Party as a sign of hope. And I think many independent voters who may have been worried uh, that the Democrats would put up an unelectable alternative and Bernie Sanders are now reassured uh, by Biden. Now, caveat, they might be wrong to be reassured by Biden. And Biden has many weaknesses as a candidate that have been politely overlooked in recent weeks and that are sure to reemerge in the coming months. But for the moment, I think um, there's a great sigh of relief among opponents of President Trump that uh, Biden has a good shot to be the nominee. I'm not a Democratic voter, but I'm also breathing a sigh of relief because I was terrified that Bernie Sanders is going to run away with it. Are you, do you find this reassuring that maybe socialism is not nearly as appealing and it's not quite the wave of the future that the Bernie wing promised us that it was? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had a kind of a ongoing debate with my uh, younger friends back, oh gosh, might have been two years ago, they were saying to me that Bernie was going to be the nominee and that there was going to be socialism and that versus nationalism. And I, I was very reluctant to endorse this thesis. I said, well, you know, the democratic coalition being what it is, and then the center of the country being where it is, I just didn't see that. I got a little spooked uh, beginning in January with Iowa, Iowa New Hampshire, and uh, Nevada. Um, but now uh, it seems like... Like, in fact, the polls are correct. Uh, most Americans do not embrace socialism. Um, most uh, Americans uh, uh, look, up, look upon Medicare for all with skepticism, skepticism at the very least. And then there's also, again, this kind of temperamental question with Sanders, which is, you know, if you love him, you really love him. If you're just someone tuning in for the first time, you see a guy from Brooklyn screaming at you and you're like, what, where, did, what, where am I? Where did this guy, where did he come from? And so I think that's also played a role in limiting, limiting his appeal so far. How, well, so what do you think though in 10, 15 years from now? Because Bernie does have this big support among the youth wing and even, yeah. I mean, I found out last night that one of my roommates supported Sanders yes. and this is never the type of guy I thought would end up being a socialist. So when the baby boomers stop voting in such high numbers in 15 years, are we going to have a democratic socialist party? Well, uh, you know, for a conservative like me, the good news is life expectancy is back on the rise. <laughs> it, it dipped a couple for a couple years, but Keep now, thanks boom. to President Trump, it's back on the rise. So, so look, uh, it, you know, uh, demographics are never static. I would make this distinction. There are millennials who are true democratic socialists, if not farther to the left. And for them, Bernie Sanders is a uh, the tribune of an emergent uh, socialism in American life or a reemergent socialism. We can't forget the legacy of Eugene Debs, right? It's not like socialism has no history in the United States. But then I think there's a broader population of millennial voters who just feel like they've got the short end of the stick for about 
the last 15 years, and they came of age at a time when uh, successive administrations, Republican and Democrat, were uh, changing regimes um, in the Middle East with no real resolution. Uh, They uh, saw the uh, financial crisis. Many of their parents were thrown out of work. They had trouble finding a job. And then, of course, they have the question of student debt and probably even more important than student debt, the um, economics of uh, owning a home, which is critical to family formation. All of these things, I think, uh, have made a lot of millennials and Gen Zers kind of looking for alternatives to the establishment. I'll, I'll use the, the the dread word neoliberal position on uh, economic questions. And so that's kind of led them to a, embrace Bernie Sanders. It's not as though they're reading Michael Harrington and, you know, dusting off the copies of the Communist Ma- Manifesto. For some of them, that's true. But I think for more broadly, it's just like we need something new. Uh, and of course, Young conservatives uh, or young people on the right say, not all of them identify as conservatives, they saw something new in uh, the figure of Donald Trump uh, four years ago. So until now, I had thought pretty clearly if Biden got the nomination, he would he would crush Trump in a general election. And then it kind of hit me, especially I've been watching lots of videos and speeches and everything. And now I'm less and less and less sure of it. At the same time, it seems everybody's putting all their eggs in his basket. If you watch it, it seems like Trump could just annihilate him for a lot of different reasons. I mean, Trump put a video up on Instagram yesterday highlighting all of Biden's gaffes. And it's horrible. And you can just sense he's going to hit him over and over again, not to mention the people aren't actually that jazzed up about him, the Democrats. It's just like, okay, this is the consensus candidate. This is who can beat Trump. So do you think Trump will have an easy time or a tough time going against Biden? I know it's a huge question. Yeah, I mean, I I really I'm not going to say what kind of time he'll have because, uh, look, I I didn't expect this virus to come out of China and start uh, messing with our society and economy and and politics. (coughs) Oh, I heard that cough. I hope that was I hope that was on purpose. I'm not shaking your hand after this. It was on purpose. Where's the Purell? Um, the, uh, so Biden. Look, what's fascinating is uh, impeachment hurt Joe Biden much more than it hurt Donald Trump. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. Once the process started, their uh, ratings reversed. Trump came out of impeachment with higher approval ratings, Biden with negative ones. Now, Biden has been helped by this primary process. And so I think he'll he'll be due for a boost. But the truth is, uh, before the primaries began, Trump was pulling uh, pretty close to Biden in some of the swing states. So I think it's going to be a much closer race than what we saw, say, last year when Biden was leading Trump by double digits. That's going to be much closer. It's likely to be another close election like most American elections are. And it's going to also mean that the I think Trump's greatest strength, which is the economy, is going to be critical. And this is why if you're a Republican um, the economic effects of coronavirus have to be very worrying um, because uh, right now Trump's record on the economy is uh, incredible. And um, if something were to seriously disturb that, then his chances of reelection do narrow. So I've got a question before we get to forecasting general election too much. A couple moratoriums are in store, one for Michael Bloomberg, one for Elizabeth Warren, a little premature, but I think it's fair to make this assumption. I I think I'm more interested actually in getting your thoughts on the Elizabeth Warren campaign and how it was from, from the beginning, incredible national organization, a lot of people on the ground, good fundraising, uh, strong, coherent, robust platform, and uh, maybe not philosophically coherent, but in terms of just, you know, laying out plans, what happened to her? Well, you're missing one thing, the candidate. (laughs) Elizabeth Warren's a terrible candidate. 
I mean, there's no question about it. She's, in terms of likability or just... Treatment? In terms of likability, in terms of uh, reassurance qualities. I mean, just think about it. She got her campaign off on the uh, wrong foot with the whole question of her uh, ancestry, right? Then you know, that trips her up. Then she decides, well, she's got to compete with Bernie. So she's going to be the lady with the plans, right? I got a plan for this, plan for that. But that then that trips her up on Medicare for all. The advantage of Bernie is there are no details, right? <laughs> so it's like, uh, I think it was Irving Howe who said, socialism is the name of our desire. It's all idealistic. And Bernie Sanders, that's what socialism is. It's an ideal. Well, Warren tried to put some meat on the bones. Yeah. Big mistake. <laughs> and then she found that when that happened, she couldn't defend it. So she kind of reversed herself. And again, you don't want to be John Kerry. Be for something before you were against it, right? So she, uh, look at her on super PACs. She did the same thing when yeah. she was running out of money. She reversed herself on super PACs. Terrible performance as a candidate. Uh, and so this is this is her big problem. However... I would be surprised if she pulls out uh, in the next couple of weeks because she is providing one fantastic service to the Democratic Party, and that is she t- she is taking votes from Bernie. And I think that would be remembered um, should the Democrats win in November. Are we sure about that, though? Because most of her, I mean, I guess I don't really interact with a ton of Elizabeth Warren voters, but the stereotype would be that they're kind of the wine track liberals that would be much more comfortable in a Biden administration than the Fidel Castro praising revolutionary sure. Sanders. Yeah, well, that's definitely, if you look online, yeah. uh, for the extremely online, the Bernie supporters and the Warren supporters don't overlap. But I do. Th- I just happen to think because they're, um, they're both you know, people who are very much on the left, um, that there might be some, uh, some movement to, to Sanders among her supporters if she, if she were to drop out. On Bloomberg, I guess, does this definitively prove in, in your... Uh opinion that you cannot buy an election. Everybody's freaking out about Mayor Bloomberg spending half a billion dollars and it seemed to win him Samoa. I I know very little. I know very little. I do know one thing. Money is not dispositive in elections. This is something I think I first learned from George Will 20 years ago, and it has been proven true time and time again. Uh, We had two billionaires spend roughly a billion uh, or close to a billion dollars between them, about half a billion on Bloomberg's side and then about a quarter billion. Uh, So that's three quarters of a billion between Steyer and Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. Steyer got zero delegates. Bloomberg is going to get a few. Um, I think I was told that he won Aspen, Colorado. That's just great. <laughs> that's his base. The crucial. All the ideas. Yeah. They're circulating the ideas there, and they came up with the idea: let's support Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> you know, that was really smart. So, again, candidate performance matters. I think if Bloomberg had not botched that debate and basically, you know, thrown gasoline on himself and lit the match, yeah. he, this election might look very different today. But um, a close friend of mine who has been observing politics up front now for, gosh, 40 years said to me that that was the worst debut of any candidate on the national stage he's ever seen, uh, that debate with Bloomberg. And so uh, when that happened, I think his chances just kind of uh, fell. What what did, why, how was he so radically unprepared in business? Oh, you find this with the late, here's another one thing, another thing I know about politics, the late entrance never do well. The first campaign I covered was the 2004 presidential election. And my first assignment was to uh, profile General Wesley Clark, who entered very late as kind of a stocking horse for the Clintons in that primary. And sure enough, he was a fall entry that time. And 
he went nowhere. And uh, another late entry in the 2008 cycle was Fred Thompson, right? And it was Fred Thompson was going to be the guy who would unify, you know, the three legs of the conservative stool or whatever and bring everybody together. Unfortunately, and I love Fred Thompson as an actor and as a politician, but one thing he loved more than campaigning was watching Sports Center, <laughs> and so he he just did not have the energy in him to 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 go the, the extra mile. So the late entrants do not do well. So Bloomberg he gets in there, he thinks I can do this. Of course, of course he can. He's Michael Bloomberg. Right, he's the right. mayor of New York, uh, right. the business uh, titan. You know, he's worth sixty billion dollars. Like the very condescending way he kept saying, "I'm richer than Trump." Right? That's the mentality. Uh, I I can do whatever I, whatever I want. No, running for president is tough, and the people that he was on stage with have been doing it for two years. You know that uh, that it's going to be tough to compete with them. Now, one thing that looked like it was happening in the last maybe six weeks, two months. Was that Trump looked like he was really trying to expand his appeal to African-American voters. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's going to be him, if it goes to him versus Biden, do you think he'll stop trying to do that? Or do you think that that no. is a winning formula for him and he'll keep going at it? I think he will keep doing it. I'm happy to see him do it. Uh, in fact, I feel it was a real missed opportunity in the first several years of his administration mm-hmm. not to continue the outreach that he began doing in the 2016 election to the black community. And he had a great speech in 2016 called A New Deal for, for Black America that the follow through has not been uh, many desired. But now he's now he's attempting this outreach again. And here's where the, the economy once again plays a, a big role, because I think the job market being what it has been, uh, economic satisfaction being what it has been, these are very attractive arguments to make to African-American voters. And even though Biden has strong African-American support in the primary, the general election might might be a little bit different. You know, one thing we saw in 2016 was the big question, uh, was the surge in African-American turnout and presence in the electorate in the 08 and 2012 elections a permanent change to our system, or was it temporary and linked to the fact of our first black president? Well, I think what we learned in 2016 was that it was very much tied to Barack Obama, the person, uh, and that if it's a, a, a white male candidate who um, is older than the incumbent and who kind of doesn't need, doesn't really know where he is a lot of the time and uh, in his Super Tuesday uh, victory speech mis- mistook his sister for his wife. Who among us? I, um, <laughs> the, uh, I, I don't know whether African-American enthusiasm will be that high uh, for the Democrat. Though uh, this, this voting group, you know, it definitely is not a big fans of Donald Trump. We talked to David French a couple months ago, back in December, I think, and it was right after Boris Johnson's huge victory, kind of realigning the political map where he won a bunch of working class voters, traditionally labor. And we wanted to know, could Trump or any Republican maybe do that in America? And he told us it's not that likely because of the race issue and that whereas in England, there's not a lot of black people voters, in America, it's a huge segment and it's going to be much tougher to assemble this multiracial. Yeah, he, he was talking about how populism in America has long history of a racial component and and that's not so true with the British parallel. Yeah, so what do you, I mean, how can this working class realignment or multiracial realignment happen, do you think? It, it seems very, it seems like it'll be much tougher for Republicans to pull this off than than we would think. 
probably be easier with Bernie Sanders as the Democratic nominee. I'll give you that. But I do think if you look at African-American males in particular, the vector is toward supporting Republicans hmm. and uh, younger African-American males. And so I, I think uh, you can't make any predictions here, but I, I do think that there's a p- real potential for President Trump granted a, a stable and growing and job-filled economy, not only with African-American voters, but also with Hispanic hmm. voters. I just saw on Twitter this clip of uh, Katie Tour going into a, uh, a Latino grocery store or bodega and asking the uh, owner, you know, who he was voting for. And he's like, well, my daughter's voting for Trump. And like the look of horror on Katie Tour's face, you know, <laughs> but let's be, let's be real here. Before this coronavirus thing started messing up the markets and uh, just our daily routines, America was doing really well, uh, you know, <laughs> and I think that has to be factored uh, when we when we start thinking about what a presidential election might look like. Well, uh, I was going to say a, f- a few weeks ago, I met a couple of people there, both their parents are El Salvadorian immigrants, and they said their parents are huge Trump supporters. Yeah. And I was surprised. And so are you surprised? Like uh, all these people I hang out with are all Trump supporters, too. Which, you know, again, liberal media would never have you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's just this real assumption because that Trump is an immigration restrictionist and wants to build the wall that Hispanic voters are against him. I don't think that's ever been the case. I think the reason that Hispanic voters have not come in great numbers to the Republican Party is the Republican Party's anti-government philosophy and the fact that the Republican Party is often seen by many voters as simply defenders of economic privilege. Trump is not necessarily that, at least in his affect, right? Um, You know, he wants jobs for everybody. He hates the elites. He speaks like a normal person, even if he's not quite a normal person himself. So I think he has a greater opportunity to make inroads with these voters. So you've written a lot in the past about left-wing college campuses, you know, how academics at major colleges, particularly elite colleges, I know you went to Columbia, are predominantly is an understatement. They are almost entirely left wing. They say it's more common to find a Marxist than a Republican in most college classrooms. And it seems like a lot of the ringleaders of the modern liberal movement come out of such circles, you know, uh, Northeast elite liberal schools. And they often seem to be talking about issues like intersectionality as opposed to real wages for workers. And I wonder if you think this sort of detachment from real American problems and focus on social justice issues and sort of self-indulgent liberal orthodoxies, if that has allowed some of the minority voters who have real problems every day to go like, is anyone thinking about the real issues that aren't related to intersectionality? Well, think about the study that was done uh, in the past year or so that found that white progressive voters are to the left of African-Americans on race. Wow. Right. And this is the great awakening. Right. Uh, that's you know, right. Um, that's that's uh, limited to uh, people who who go from the colleges you describe and who live in the super zips that Charles Murray wrote about in 2012. So this is a tremendous problem for Democrats. Uh, Nate Cohn's colleagues at The Upshot had a good article, I think, just in the past week that said that Democrats need to get out of their Whole Foods bubble. If they're going to win in the key huh. swing states of Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. 
And it's definitely limiting the Democrats' appeal, this uh, overemphasis on, um, on culture and a real radical view of culture, a very, you know, what Roger Scruton called the culture of repudiation, an almost anti-American view, right? 1619 Project, this country's corrupt from the start, from before the start. It didn't start when you thought it started. It started earlier, and then it just shows how uh, everything's corrupt. If you think about the wokest candidates, they all failed, Right. I mean, just think we got a uh, two man race now, Sanders and Biden, even Sanders, while he's culturally left, that's not really what he cares about. Right. He cares about the millionaires and billionaires. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's what he that's what gets him up in the morning. Uh, that's an older left. Beto. Right. And Julian Castro. They flopped. And, uh, though I will say Biden may have made a big gaffe. And of course, that sentence is going to be something we hear a lot in the coming months <laughs> when he said. Uh, in the rally prior to Super Tuesday that he was going to put Beto in charge of gun policy. Now, all you need to do is take that clip and run it against the clip of uh, Beto saying, hell yeah, we're going to take your guns and you're going to motivate a lot of Second Amendment supporters to go vote for Donald Trump. Not that they need much encouragement, but but it's going to be a great attack against Joe Biden in the fall. Well, one thing that really is interesting to me is we I know we've had these conversations hundreds of times about is the left, is this whole political correctness, woke left thing really prominent or is it just the Twitter sphere and the college campuses and whatever? And it is amazing. I mean, I saw a clip, I think Trump tweeted out. Biden. Is this where you get all your news from <laughs> yeah, social Strictly. Media? That's, that's a little that's a scary movie. fake news. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, and he tw- it was a clip of Biden saying the fastest, he's saying the fastest growing group of people in Delaware is Indian Americans. You can't go into a 7-Eleven or Dunkin' Donuts without using an yeah. Indian accent. Oh, well, how about, so, that, right. of course, yeah, Biden said that in uh, his last presidential run in 08. And now can contrast that with what Donald Trump has been doing with Indian Americans, right? Yeah. His mega rally with Modi here in Houston last year, and then his trip to India, yeah. where he addressed an even larger crowd and said, America loves Indians, right? <laughs> and then that fantastic photo of him and Melania at the Taj Mahal, which is like, uh, you know, the coming together of all these different things, Trump's casino business, and now here he is as president (laughs) in front of the Taj Mahal. So, yeah, there's a long file of Biden stuff. And there's going to, because Biden is Biden, there's going to be a lot more that comes out. (laughs) Now, look, it's not going to be like 2012 where you had the Washington Post reporter say, you know, to Mitt Romney, what about your gaffes, right? I mean, the media will be protecting Joe Biden. But on the other hand, though, anyone who watches him, he's good for about two, three minutes, and then he just kind of falls apart. I, I mean, the, the, the language, he starts going anywhere. Did you see the clip with him at trying to quote the Declaration of Independence? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, all men and women, he added that part. Yeah. All men and women are created. You know the thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you, but... I do think there is a distinction gaps and tell me if this is wrong, but between like there are the there are the Romney gaps gaps of corporations are people. I love firing people. And it kind of <laughs> it, it kind of it, you you were thinking everybody was like, OK, he is. Th- that was the bad narrative of Romney we told. And he just had a gap that kind of lined up with this bad narrative Romney we've been taught, whereas Joe Biden's are yeah mixing up your sister with your wife, which aren't great, but it's not as damning perhaps as to his candidacy. Uh, well, there is a certain there's a lot. Like, I'll put it this way: there's a lot of goodwill and reserve toward Joe Biden. Yes, that there was never with Mitt Romney. Yeah. But then you just start thinking about Joe, you know, saying, hey, "Look, look fat," you know, <laughs> or calling that girl the name the from the True Grit. Yeah, Hovira, Hovs, or or like the, my favorite is where the climate 
an activist came up to him and said, I'm going to vote for you, but I just want to know more about climate. He said, go vote for someone else. <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but it's just kind of weird behavior. I mean, can you imagine the debate between him and Trump? No, I mean, it's, it's just going to be Trump, I think, will come across as more with it. Yeah. yeah, well, we should. Okay, we'd be remiss, though, in this whole conversation. Uh, Trump is not exactly gaff proof himself. I mean, he said. Well, it's so on a whole other things, level. But, okay. You know what I'm saying? It's just, an, it's just on a different different level. Trump's gaffes aren't gaff. They're Trump. They're, yes. You know, it's yes. like by now you just expect it and you either tune it out or you, you become obsessed with it and, and you're going to. You're going to vote for him. Uh, you're going to vote against him um, for that reason, right? Whereas Biden, it feels like he's lost his marbles. Trump, it feels like no, these are his marbles. They're just not pretty. <laughs> they just frighten a lot they, of people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, we are almost out of time. You do a lot of work here, especially at AI, focusing on the history of the conservative intellectual movement. Whether or not he wins in 2020, 2024, or whatever, at some point there will be life after Trump. Who is going to inherit this conservative movement? Oh, well, it's up for grabs. You know, I, I thought one of the most interesting developments in recent weeks was uh, at the Conservative Political Action Conference. Uh, and you had a variety of uh, politicos uh, make sure that they put in an appearance there. Uh, you had Nikki Haley. You had uh, Josh Hawley. You also had Don Jr. You had Matt Gates, uh, the House member from Florida. And then let's not forget uh, Senator Cruz. And uh, there's also Tom Cotton. There's a lot. There's going to be a lot of contestants to inherit the Trump mantle or to reclaim the party or rather uh, because they'll be hard running against the Trump legacy in the Republican primary, even in 2024. It's up for grabs. So I get, which prong of the three-legged stool that we've been told upholds the party, the mm -hmm. defense hawks, the free marketeers, and the yeah, so not, Neither of those. No. So, no this is a uh, is religious-based working-class nationalist party. I really do think that's the case. And so the, whoever takes the baton from Trump uh, is going to have to appeal to that. I mean, really, the, there's just uh, one graph you need to look at, and that is the share of Republicans who hold uh, college degrees or higher. And this this share has been going down steadily for the last 20 years, and it's been going down precipitously since 2015, 16. Mm. Uh, and it's been replaced by uh, Americans uh, uh, without college degrees. And I, I, I don't see anything that's going to arrest that trend. All right. Well, we'll be watching it eagerly, and we'll hope to have you back on to talk about it when it all goes down. Matt, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Matt. Well, thank you, Matt, and thank you to everybody who tuned in. If you liked this podcast, please continue to leave reviews, comments, ratings on iTunes. You can also email us at banter at AEI.org. I am very touched by a comment we got from a guy named Middle America <laughs> responding to our Andrew Sullivan episode who said, Best episode I've heard yet. On a miserable two-degree morning commute in Detroit, Michigan, I laughed out loud at the bird scooter mandate. I don't know if that's facetious or not, or if he actually likes my mandate, or if he thinks it's dumb, but thank you, Middle America. I Mi appreciate you. Middle America, if we have one goal with this podcast, I think it's probably reaching Middle America. <laughs> we love you guys. I don't and think this was one person. I think there was a huge group of people that contributed to this. For the, the entire mission. This was electorate. a consensus, <laughs> exactly. I, I heartily agree. All right, we're going to do the watch, read, listen segment today where we each go around and share something that we watched, read, or listened to in the past week that is worth your attention. Max Frost, would you like to kick us off? I'll kick us off with a watch. I watched a movie last night. It's called A Separation. It's on Netflix. One in 2013, I believe, won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. I'm a big Best Foreign Film kind of guy. 
It's about this couple that's getting divorced in Iran. They're getting divorced, some bad stuff happens, and they have to go through this whole thing in the Iranian legal system. And it's an incredibly detailed, up-close look at the Iranian justice system, Iranian society, social, social, cultural norms and everything. Very powerful, extremely well done, gripping, highly recommend it. It's on Netflix. All right, what's it called again? A Separation. Highly, highly recommend it. Got it. Does it have subtitles? No, I, I did the whole thing in Farsi. Okay, so it is in Farsi. Right. <laughs> it's in Farsi. There's subtitles. All right, yeah, well, that, you know, that's a barrier to some of us. My watch is actually, it's a read this week and a watch because it's also on AEI's Instagram. Give us a follow. Daniel Cox, one of our fellows here, does a lot of polling data, and he had a very interesting blog post with a bunch of data on why hating Trump will not be enough. Most Americans still have an unfavorable opinion of the president. It's been above 50% ever since 2016, honestly. But that is the key. It was also above 50% in 2016, and yet he still won. And, interestingly enough, he actually is doing a little bit better in favorability now than he was in 2016. So it's a message to Biden or Bernie or whoever comes out of this slugfest that is the Democratic primary. As Matt Cottonetti said, Trump might unify people and get them to the polls for him or against him, but unless the Democrats have somebody they can rally behind with a positive message... At least the polling, according to Dan Cox, says that will not be enough. Question, do you think the Democrats and Joe Biden specifically have a positive message right now? I think the Biden message is vote for me and politics will become somewhat normal again, which honestly I think might be a very, very compelling message. I think it's I think it's more positive than that. Yeah. It's saying, you know, this, we, we, we can fix it. We can unite the country. We can bring everybody into our movement. I think it's very positive. I like it. And from the Biden campaign, that was Max Frost. <laughs> I, my read this week is actually from our guest today, oh. Matt Continetti. And it's called The First Postmodern Pandemic. And believe it or not, it's about coronavirus. His point is that fact and the unity you'd expect from a crisis facing our country and world are kind of out the window. So instead, it's partisanship. Instead, it's who can screw up this coronavirus situation the most, you know, which is unfortunate because this is a serious problem right now. Obviously, he, he draws the 1918 Spanish flu parallel, which had a similar mortality rate, slightly higher than what China's seen. And obviously, the, the mortality rate's lower in the West than it is in China for coronavirus with our treatments and everything. But long story short is, how about let's have some unity during a pandemic. I mean, this is this is people suffering and dying. Work together. Do what you. I mean, call out poor decisions when they occur, but don't you know none of the party line stuff. People are tired of it. It is also affecting the all important decision of my summer vacation plans. I, uh, I'm supposed to go to Europe, uh, and now I it might I might have to buy some insurance. I don't know. Which, well, the worst country in Europe for the coronavirus is Italy, right? Which is where I'm supposed to. There go. you have yeah, it. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens there. Max, I mean, you wrote a thing in the Wall Street Journal with uh, with Paul. Wolfowitz, Ambassador Wolfowitz, to you, about the, <laughs> uh, about the coronavirus and the and the ep- Spanish flu epidemic. What I mean, what was the point of your guys? Well, life? the point of the, the point of this was this is back in January. Back what happened in 1917 with the Spanish flu, which killed 700,000 Americans and between 50 and 100 million people around the world. It was during World War One, and people, it, all the major countries were under censorship, so people couldn't talk about it. People, you know, the media couldn't report on it. That's why I actually got the name Spanish flu because Spain was neutral and wasn't 
didn't have censorship in place. Mm. So it got the, it's a misnomer, really, Spanish flu, because it was all over the place first, and then ended up in Spain, and only there could people start to report about it. But what we were writing about was in China, how repression, censorship, all this kind of stuff made it so much worse. And there are all these instances, just like this doctor. There's a doctor who contracted it, and the first person like alert everybody about it, then died a month later, and they tried to shut him up in China, saying it's not a big deal, not a big deal, and it was a big deal. Did you see that 10% of the Iranian MPs have coronavirus. It's ridiculous, yeah. yeah. Or how about that video of the guy basically saying everything is fine while wiping sweat furiously Oh, right, right. And the next day, he, there's deputy health minister. Next day, he was, they found he had it. So, if you want to continue coverage on this, check out Scott Gottlieb's Twitter. Check out his media appearances, his Wall Street Journal op-eds. He's covering this intensely. Matt Continetti actually referenced him in the piece. So keep up with Scott. But in any event, we hope everybody stays safe. We hope that this does not become as horrible as it could and we've been quarantined at the studio yeah <laughs> we'll be here cranking out three podcasts a day for the next month i think so wash hands no shaking hands don't touch your face don't touch your face which is much harder than you realize it, and it don't panic be smart but please don't panic i'm relaying that's not my you know i have no authority to say that but i'm relaying what scott gottlieb is saying Tui, take your mask off nobody can understand you <laughs> <laughs> uh thank you all for listening yeah we wish you a good week and we'll see you next week